0: The reading today is from Proverbs, chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, sometimes, the church calendar has a sense of humor. We're going to be talking about lust on the day that we did child dedications. And uh, I just suddenly realized that as we were, I just put that together a few seconds ago. Um, also, I have some bad news. Um, maybe you've kind of noticed. Um, it's it's um, mustache November and, and Lauren Kimmel and uh, Helena... Uh, um, James and my wife, Jackie, Jackie Switzer, uh, they put their foots down and insisted that the three of us grow our mustaches for November. And, and so we had no choice um, but to do that. And so uh, Stephanie, the operations manager, says that this is the creepiest month of the year at Redemption Arcadia. So uh, just let you know that. Um, sorry about that. And um, <laughs> Jackie said, I need to grow a backbone. Anyway. Um, Sometimes I like to also let you know about about just the life of the church. This has been an amazing weekend. Um, I'm a little tired from it, but it's been all wonderful and good. Uh, We had our first uh, memorial service or funeral in this building since we moved in in July of 2016, so more than a year. We've had several weddings already, uh, but the first memorial service and the memorial service was... Friday afternoon, and it was for the pastor of the church that was here before. He was pastor 35 years, Bill Whitlow, Pastor Bill, Uh, and I just think that was apropos that our first memorial service would be for him here, and uh, it was a reunion of sorts for Biltmore Bible. There were about 100 people here, and and they spent a lot of time just reminiscing, but also um, really rejoicing that the gospel is continuing on this property. So that was really cool. And then the reception was all out there, and the weather was perfect. I mean, it was just a great time. Uh, and then yesterday morning, we had our first annual Redemption Arcadia Work Day. So uh, about 25 guys gathered uh, under the leadership of Ken Dickinson, the facilities guy, and Paul Tyson, one of our deacons here at Redemption Arcadia. And from 9 to 12, we just uh, worked on a lot of projects and did a lot of cleaning and, and just, again, being called by the Holy Spirit to uh, to really steward and care for this property that God has so graciously provided uh, for us through the board of Biltmore Bible Church and their vision for the gospel continuing here. And then last night, um, one of the best events I've ever attended uh, at a church, we had a... a uh, uh, Tammy Lauterbach had an evening for all of the children's ministry volunteers, an appreciation dinner for all of them, and it was just a blast, and it was very honoring to those uh, people who uh, serve so well in children's ministry and probably know these these, uh, babies that were up here being dedicated today. So just a great weekend, and now we get to do um, Lust. So it's really just absolutely perfect. Um, We... (laughs) We've been starting every uh, every one of these Proverbs messages. We, for those of you who are new, we've we've uh, decided to do a seven week series in the Book of Proverbs. All of the Redemption Churches are doing this. We're all doing the same passages every week. So there's lust going out everywhere in Arizona this week, uh, this Sunday. And uh, but one of the things we decided to do at Arcadia was to team it up with just readings from. Uh, the Psalms uh, before we start every sermon, and so uh, this uh, Psalm today that we're going to read is Psalm 32. We just want to uh, read the Psalm and have it apply, uh, have have the Holy Spirit apply to the heart, apply it to the hearts and the minds of the hearers. Uh, really, no commentary. There is one thing I'm going to mention though about this Psalm. A couple of times in this Psalm, you're going to see the word selah. Uh, the The word selah is not something that you read in the Psalm. It's actually Uh, a directive from the person who either wrote the psalm or the choir master who is in charge of presenting the psalm as a song. And the word selah uh, actually means to pause and ponder what was just said, the words that were just sung or the words that were just said. It is is God's way of saying, listen, you really need to let the Holy Spirit apply what was just uh, said to your heart. Uh, and it's not that anything else in the Psalms is any less important, but in this particular case, God is saying, listen closely and consider this and, and pray about it. Uh, 71 times in the book of Psalms, you'll see the word Selah, and three times in the book of Habakkuk, you will also see the word Selah, and that's the only, those are the only places that you'll see it. So, and Psalm 32 is also uh, important because it is a Psalm about our forgiveness as we stand before God. And that God is the one who forgives. And that's where we can go for our forgiveness. And it's David who wrote the psalm. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are thankful. For your word, and we are thankful that your word continue to points to your forgiveness. That, that in you, by you, through your son and what he has done, we can stand before your throne as righteous. It's an amazing thing. We thank you for uh, your work through your son in that. And the fact that as we are raised to walk in new life as new creations, you fill us with your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for that, and we ask that that Spirit now would fill us so that we could open our hearts and our minds to what we're going to talk about this morning from your Word, from Proverbs chapter five. And we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. So this this uh, series in in Proverbs is really about wisdom, pursuing the wisdom of God, genuine wisdom, uh, and not only uh, pursuing it but then making sure it becomes a, a, an integral part of our lives, that we're not segmenting this in any way, that we walk it out in every part of our lives. And we've, we've talked uh, throughout the first few weeks about what the definition of wisdom is. And one of the definitions, some people would say the primary definition of wisdom, is that it is the expert application of knowledge to life. In other words, knowledge really isn't wisdom. We can have lots and lots of knowledge. We can know things. We can have a a cell phone where we can can look things up on Google and fact-check everybody. Uh, But that does not necessarily give us wisdom. In fact, um, our founding pastor would argue that um, uh, just because you can fact-check somebody doesn't mean that you have the wisdom to know when and where to apply that fact-checking. And that's become true in... In our culture, I heard a, a little bit uh, i think a little earthier and, and more interesting um, sort of explanation of the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Friday night when I was at our redemption community, the leader of our redemption community, Sean de Serafino said this he, he said, "Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. wisdom is knowing that you never put a tomato in a fruit salad, so th- that 's how we that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And, and, and we're going to just dive right in today. Here's the big idea. We're going to talk about wisdom when it comes to lust and adultery. The big idea is that purity and discipline lead to life. Lust and frivolous pursuits lead to destruction. And then, yeah, we have to add that last sentence. Choose purity and discipline. So we're going to do all of chapter 5 in Proverbs because, again, it, it helps give us a kind of a story of what Solomon is trying to tell uh, this son of his. And he writes this in the first six verses. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. You know, look, look up here. Be attentive. Listen under. The word literally means to listen under. Be obedient to this wisdom, incorporate it into your life. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion, that's an important word, discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life Her ways wander, and she does not know it. He really pleads with his son. He's pleading with his son, and I think with very good reason. You look at verse 1, listen to me, pay attention. And I think that we can look at the application of this in life and see how true this is. I believe it is just true that generally spouses and parents tend not to be listened to by other spouses and children. Spouses and parents tend not to be listened to by other spouses and children. Uh, My wife Jackie, who is uh, a certified, ACE certified group fitness instructor and nutritionist, and that's her career, her life, her job. She coaches volleyball too, but uh, she's the director of the Family Life Center at North Phoenix Baptist Church, which is a large 90,000 square foot uh, health club, essentially, open to the public. And she knows all of this stuff and has to keep up her certification and all that. And she's telling me all the time, Frank, one of your major problems is you run and you, 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 you try to take care of yourself, but you never work on your core. You need to work on your core. A lot of your balance problems have to do with your core. You need you really need to work on that? How many of you enjoy working on your core? it's not very much fun. you enjoy it i'll pray for you, my brother. She says that to me, and I 'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just want washboard abs, yeah, yeah, I get that. yeah, yeah and then i and then I hang out with a couple of guys who seem to know I, I respect them because They're into fitness and all that stuff. And they say to me, Frank, you know, you really ought to consider working on your core. And I rush home and I tell Jackie, you know what, I think I really need to work on my core. (laughs) Literally that happens, okay? And it's the same thing with with children, you'll find, especially as they get older, um, into their teen years. You know, you'll come to them as parents and you'll say, I don't think this would be such a wise thing for you to do. And the response is, yeah, yeah. I'll take care of it. And then suddenly they come home from volleyball practice, and they say, so-and-so at volleyball practice said this, which is exactly what you said last week. And they're saying, I think they're right. (laughs) Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, My daughters and I, since they turned 18, have an understanding. And one of them's in the room right now, and I forgot to ask her if it was okay if I talked about this, so too bad. Years ago, I made a deal with them. I'd give them $5 every time I used them as a sermon illustration. I don't know if I ever paid them the money that I owe them. But at any rate, <laughs> ever since each of my daughters turned 18, I, I went to them and had this conversation with them, and, and we have an understanding. I, I said, listen, uh, you're 18 now. You're an adult. You're, you're going to make your own decisions. That's what we raised you to do. We raised you to be able to assess life and start to make your own decisions we didn't raise you to have to to be 28 years old and to still be bailed out by your parents Uh, so but but in the midst of that we 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 still want to be in relationship with you and we still want to be able to speak into your life in a way that's still respectful and heard and so here's the deal that I want to have with you and both of them agreed to this and I think it's worked well I said, I I get to express my opinion and give you what my insight is, and you will listen patiently without rolling your eyes. And then you get to go and make your own decision. No matter what, I won't try to steer you in a particular direction once we've had the conversation. It's all up to you now. You're the adult. You get to go and do that. And, and, and I am not going to say I told you so if it went south, and I'm not going to roll my eyes if you disagree with my, quote, insight. And, and that's our relationship in that regard right now. Our relationship is, of course, much broader than that, but that's the way we handle those things. I still get to have input in my daughter's lives as, as adults, but it's it's respectful, and there. are willing to hear me, and I'm okay with them going ahead and making their own decision. And I think it's fostered honor and respect in our relationship rather than um, sometimes the divisiveness that I see between young uh, young adults and their parents. And I get the sense that Solomon is trying to do the same thing here. He's saying, look... I really have some insight that I want you to listen to. You're going to be your own person, and you're going to go and do what you want to do, but I just want you to give me a hearing here. And he says in verse 2, you really need discretion. This is a pretty specific Hebrew word here. Um, He says, your plan is to stay pure and on the right path, and the word discretion means having the wisdom to reject anything that would defile your purity and take you off of that path. Remember, uh, we talked about a couple weeks ago about how evil lays to the left and to the right of the path of God's wisdom. And so discretion is understanding that you're not going to get distracted and pulled off that path. You're going to recognize evil when you see it, such as, specifically in our passage today, an adulterous woman. An adulterous woman. Verses 2 through 6 You look as Solomon sort of begins his lesson portion of what he's saying. And and the lesson about the temptress or what you might call the femme fatale is that she's deceptive and she's good at it. That's the lesson. She's deceptive and she's really good at it. Her lips drip with honey, meaning meaning that she will persuade you to do things that you know you don't want to do and that you know will end in disastrous, but, but you do it anyway. She's good at sucking you in. And, and what's really hard about it is, here you go, here you go. What's really hard about it is that when you do give in, when I give in, it is fun. It is fun for a season. That's one of the hardest parts of this, and that's part of the sucking in. I have a a friend who is a pastor, and and he says this all the time. He says, sin is fun. And if you're not having fun when you're sinning, then you're not sinning correctly. (laughs) But that fun only lasts a season. That's part of the deception. It doesn't doesn't last. You'll taste her pleasures, the honey. Mm. But then it actually becomes bile in your mouth. She promises the best of life, but she delivers death. John Golden Gay, one of the just all-time great Old Testament scholars, writes this, sexual unfaithfulness is the supreme folly in life. It always makes sense in the pursuit, always destroys people in the wake. It makes sense in the pursuit. We can rationalize it, and we can enjoy how wonderful it's going to be when you finally catch the rabbit. But it always ends up causing destruction in the wake, what you leave behind. I think it's interesting that Golden Gay uses the word wake. Henry Cloud wrote a book called Integrity among the many books that he's written. Has anybody read Henry Cloud's book, Integrity? Anybody? I just highly recommend it. Um, He talks about how the person of integrity is a person who leaves a wake behind them that's very smooth, that people can actually live in that wake. And, and he of course, he uses the metaphor of, of being behind a ski boat. And, and if the driver of the ski boat Uh, knows how to drive that ski boat well, that that the skier is not going to have to worry about choppy waters and getting thrown off the skis. Uh, The the, the driver of the boat is going to make sure that they're going to have a wake that's smooth. The person who does not live with integrity, the person who does not live with wisdom, the person that gives in to folly and to foolishness ends up with a wake filled with choppy waters that people find very difficult to live in. And I will tell you, I've looked at my life wake at times and have been absolutely discouraged and saddened by the choppy waters that I've left. And I want to blame something else, I do, but really, it's me. It's my decisions pointing towards folly that have caused any choppy waters in my wake. And those Choppy waters are very difficult for people to live in. And lust makes for choppy waters in the lake. Lust does. However that lust is manifested, which are myriad ways in our culture today, it'll always leave choppy waters. Look then at 7 through 14. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, the adulteress. And do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am... At the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. I am at the brink of uttered ruin in the assembled congregation. Verses 7 and 8, here's what Solomon is saying. Don't play around the edges of sin. Now, again, you don't, please, no show of hands, but how many of us, we we see a temptation, we see a sin. And what we do is we think, you know what, I just want to get a whiff of it. I just want to play around the edges. I can go to this website, but, but I won't go to that website. I, I can flirt this way at work, but I, I will never flirt that way at work. And you start to play around the edges. You know what you're doing? That's the first step to justifying the next step. Because the minute you've taken that first step, you're going that next step. That's just the way sin works. There, is all, there are all these studies, um, Christian and non-Christian studies, about the inc- incremental growth of sin in a person's life. People, at the end of, of this, their ruination, they look back and they say, how, how did that even happen? All I did was this. That's all I did. And I ended up over here. It's the incremental Growth of sin in our lives if we can justify this we can justify this we can justify this And the next thing we're ruined in verses 9 and 10 It says that when you pursue the the frivolous you're giving away items of importance in your life You're just giving them away your reputation your honor your strength and your dignity You're giving away those things in your life when you pursue the frivolous When you pursue the foolish We fall for the trap that our notion of freedom, that our notion of pleasure, that our notion of indulgence, we fall for the trap that our notion of the honey will not cost us anything. We're smart enough, we can do it. We can figure it out. But then it does cost us. And and again, the interesting part of, of sin is that the cost early on, because it's fun and exciting, the cost seems so small compared to the pleasure But you also know that over time, that cost goes up like this, and the return of pleasure goes down to the point where really the cost is up here, and all you're receiving back for your your investment is destruction. That's the way it works. And we all know that. And I know that we're all sad about that, because we all look at our own lives, and we can see how that pattern is played out in our own lives. And that's good news, actually, because we can draw on that pattern to say, okay, Wisdom would be to not do that anymore, to change these patterns of life, to to actually listen to God. Verses 10 and 11 explain that these foolish pursuits rob us of our strength, our honor, our comfort, our wages, our wages, and our life. And then verses 10 through 14 tell of our consequences and regret. By engaging the temptress, by the way, Or the temptor, or the temptor, by engaging, we end up with consuming regret and the loss of reputation and relationship. We mourn the fact that we did not listen. We despised wise counsel and discipline, and now we see the devastation caused by our rejection of that discipline and counsel. Trust has been broken. Our reputation has been irrevocably tarnished. And ultimately, many, many others are hurt by our foolhardy pursuit of vapid pleasure trinkets. The historian Ben Sass writes this in his recent book, there is no study that can be cited that shows that promiscuity leads to fulfillment and happiness. In fact, just the opposite, monogamy has been correlated with contentment, security, joy, and fulfillment, while promiscuity always, always leads to emptiness and depression. Well, Solomon goes from, here's all the bad, and then he gives you this idea of what you should be turning to. So he's not just saying, don't do this. He then, he gets to a point where he says, here's what you should be turning to, and that's verses 15 through 20. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not with strain, for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and in, rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? This is graphic, descriptive counsel, isn't it? Some people are surprised to hear that this is in the Bible. Read the Song of Solomon. It goes deeper. It really does. So verses 15 and 16. Okay, you have to understand this is a metaphor. I hope you understand that. He didn't suddenly think, hey, you know what? You've been working out. Are you thirsty? You need some water? Drink water from your own cisterns. Okay, now we'll go back and talk about the adulteress and your wife, okay? No, it's a metaphor, and it's a very graphic metaphor, right? It's very graphic. Here's what he's saying in 21st century vernacular. Hey, keep your pants on. Whether it's with another woman or with a screen, keep your pants on. That's what he's saying. And then he talks about what really the love of god in our lives which in our context would be the gospel of jesus christ what it does for physical love or what we would call eros love there are all kinds of love in a romantic relationship there's five of them and and if again if you want a description of those listen to our podcast on the song of solomon but there's five of them one of them is eros love it's it's very important it's that physical love that you have it's the physical relationship you have within the context of a marriage. But, but one of the tragic things about that love is that um, so many couples, especially in the church, quit working on that part of their relationship. They, they stop nurturing it. They, they say they get distracted, distracted with career and children and busyness and serving at the church, and they just don't have time for it anymore. But it also it's because, you know, it's become so familiar. It's not as exciting as it used to be. I'm going to tell you a very personal story, and, and I, I just I, I want to tell it because I think it needs to be heard, and it's important. My wife Jackie is the only woman I have ever dated with or been involved with romantically since becoming a Christian, since um, God saved me with his gospel. I was 27 years old when that happened. And up until that time, I had had lots and lots of romantic relationships. And at some point in every one of those relationships, I will just admit to you, I got tired of the way the woman looked. I did. And it was the impetus for me to, uh, in many uh, cases, to just move on from there. That has not been true with Jackie. The truth is, is that after 30 years of marriage, she looks better to me today than she did when I first met her. And let me tell you something. She was okay when I first met her. (laughs) But she looks better to me now. What's the difference I'm just trying harder. Hmm. I love gospel eyes. I love the eyes that the good news of Jesus gives us if we would just submit to that. That's the beauty of the gospel. It changes all of our life like that, but especially romantic eros love. The irony of eros love is that a romantic relationship cannot be sustained by eros love alone. But it's also true that a romantic relationship cannot survive without constant, regular eros love. That's the irony of eros love. And by the way, that's the way God set it up. We can't live only on it, but we can't live without it. That's how important this love is. Is Physical love is supposed to be nurtured, enjoyed, and last. That's how God made it. But intimately with one person. That's also how God made it. That's also how God made it. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Read the Song of Solomon. And I will tell you, just... Sooner or later, you knew I'd go specifically to this, but I have to. Pornography has pretty much ruined this. The availability of pornography has pretty much ruined this for human beings. It's pleasure on demand. It's anonymous. It's affordable. It's also very portable. Any place, anywhere, anytime. You know what pleasure on demand causes? First thing is that it trains us that we never have to engage with another human being. We never have to have a relationship. We never have to have the messiness of the pushing and pulling of a real relationship, but that's where the beauty of real relationships are. So we never have to get in the trenches with anybody. That's pretty cool but it also leads to our destruction. The second thing is, it does is it desensitizes us. People become objects. And it also desensitizes us in a way that makes us actually, we've had our fill of that. We don't need that anymore, and that's not how God created us. You understand, I'm sure some of you have seen this, and this is study after study. The average age now that a child encounters their first online pornography is eight years old. Do you think they have the wisdom to be able to understand that that's not helpful to them? Do you understand what that's doing to our children? By the time boys are 12, there's virtually nothing we can do. They have to actually go to a psychiatrist to start working on rewiring their brain, the Gospel Coalition has several essays about how. And this is true, by the way. I've read all this stuff. I've read it outside of of Christian literature as well. Um, older teenage males now just aren't interested in women, in dating, and in romance. They're just not interested. And and there's women of the same age walking around going, what's wrong with these guys? It's pornography. That's what's wrong with them. And by the way, pornography abuse is on the rise like you would not believe with women now, too, young women. It's everywhere. It's made young men become like bots. The lights are on and nobody's home. We're sealing our destruction with this stuff. Guys, if you want great marital sex, keep your pants up everywhere, and I mean everywhere else. Something else. As long as I'm already in a little bit of trouble with some of you, let me just go a little deeper here, okay? <laughs> the thrust of this chapter, think about the thrust of this chapter. Solomon is not afraid of assigning certain characteristics to men and certain characteristics to women. Because I know this is shocking, and, and, and I could get into a lot of trouble saying this in, in the 21st century um, uh, political correctness scene, but men and women are different. Biologically, neurologically, and physiologically, men and women are different, and you go ahead and deny it all you want. That's foolishness. We're different. God made it that way. But here's what it seems like Solomon is a sci- He said the thrust of this chapter seems to be on the provocative nature of women and the foolishness and stupidity of men. You, you read this chapter in its rawness, and that's what I think you'll get from it. The provocative nature of women and the foolishness and the stupidity of men. And it works the other way, too, by the way. It works the other way. You got the guys working the babes in the marketplace, too. You just do. Ladies, if you're married or you're spoken for, and a guy at work comments on your hair or your clothes, he's not just a nice guy. He's not. He's also not innocent and naive. He's not. He knows. Here you go. Here's what guys know. He knows that if your husband loses sight of how important it is to keep pursuing you, that you're going to like being pursued somewhere else. He knows that. And if you're somebody who's still being pursued and courted by your husband, as you should be, you will resist that temptation generally, but what he'll do is he'll just move on. Because there's somebody there. There's somebody there whose husband is not pursuing her. You're what is known as a gimme. Guys, you got to keep courting and dating and pursuing your wife, and really, you're a fool if you don't. And if you're someone who says, well, I just don't feel like it anymore, it's mostly because you've quit doing it. Studies have shown this. When you guys got together, here you go. When you guys got together, You saw each other as tens on a scale of 1 to 10. You saw each other as tens. And so how did you behave towards each other? You treated each other like tens. But as all relationships do, you experience some deterioration and some familiarity, and suddenly you see each other as sevens. And what do you do? You begin treating each other like sevens. Maybe the occasional six, and that just helps you go down that negative downward, downward spiral. Pretty soon you see each other as twos and threes, and how are you treating each other? Now you're in trouble. Well, I just don't feel like it anymore. Here's a revolutionary thought. It's going to take a little work, and you're not going to like it, but it works. Studies have shown. You see your spouse as a two, start treating them like a ten. And I don't mean for five or ten minutes. Treat them like a 10. This is is not Protestant guilt. It's just a fact. When Jesus went to the cross, he was treating us like 10s. Did we deserve that? No. No. Start treating your spouse like a 10. Guess what? The feelings follow. The feelings will follow. And by the way, that eros love thing, if it's not happening... Let's get to it, all right? I'm serious. I'm serious. One of the greatest tragedies in the American church, the Christian church today, is the amount of sexually active singles and sexually celibate marrieds. And I'm not talking about marrieds in their 70s and 80s and 90s. I'm talking about marrieds in their 20s and 30s. It's a problem. Dallas Willard says it this way, and he's absolutely right. A love that is not nurtured is a love that will not grow. You have to nurture it. You you know, when you plant a a flower or something or a bush and and you don't water it and you don't take care of it and it dies, are you sitting there scratching your head going, well, I wonder why it died? No, you get it. You get it. It's the same thing with romantic love. If you planted that baby, you better start watering it and nurturing it and feeding it and tending to it and working on it. Verses 21 through 23. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly he is led astray. First of all, we think we're getting away with this when we do this stuff. And what Solomon is saying is everything you're doing is right before God. He sees it. You may have been able to hide it from others, but he sees it. And then he says, and by the way, because you've rejected discipline, you're now dead and you don't even know it. You're already dead and you don't even know it. So he's saying you need to decide. Do you want discipline or do you want destruction? Discipline or destruction Uh, Let me read from Hebrews chapter 12 and just listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say about discipline. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us in the faith, those witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. All that wrong stuff, that bad stuff, the sin Lay it to the side, to the left and to the right, and run that straight path of the race that we're called to, that, we're, that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, we look to him for the power. The founder and perfect of our, uh, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This sounds really hard to work on my marriage jesus went to the cross he's calling us to live for that we we don't have to go to the cross he's already done that for us so he calls us to this life consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted think of him when it becomes hard in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That is a frightening verse. If God's not getting in your face occasionally, you have something to worry about. If he's not disciplining you, he he disciplines his kids. Besides this, we uh, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment all dis- for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame, May not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Think about the discipline it took Jesus to keep saying yes to the cross. Can you imagine that? He started his ministry three years before he was crucified, but he knew every moment of that ministry that the cross was his destination, that that's where he was headed. And that last week of his life when he set his his countenance toward Jerusalem, he was walking to his death, to his execution. And that discipline certainly did not seem pleasant at the time, right? And I'm guessing that whole three years that that had to be in the back of his head, yet he did it. Why? Why did he do it? Because he loves us. He loves us that much. Because he's committed to serving us. Because he will look out for our interests even if they are not in his interests. Because he is humble. Paul says in Philippians chapter two verse five, "Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he humbled himself. We should have that same humble mind that Paul says Jesus has. Paul's interesting to me. in the New Testament, Paul exhorts his readers six different times in six different places, to imitate him, to imitate Paul, to be like Paul. Why? Was Paul arrogant? Is that why? Be like me. Look at me, man. No, he's he's pointing us to Jesus. We never talk about this. Here's one of them in Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Um, The the word think there literally means um, like hyperthink, like uh, spend time in these things. Don't just think about them in passing, but spend time in these things. And then he says this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. When Paul says, be like me, he, what he's saying is, be like Jesus. Follow Jesus. Look not at just what Jesus does, but who Jesus is. He's loving. He's compassionate. He's faithful. He's filled with empathy. He's humble. He's dependent on the Father. Look at the Gospel of John, how many times he says, I am dependent on my Father, Jesus, the Son, the Messiah, God himself. I'm dependent on my Father. John Ortberg says that it's interesting, the relationship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all shy and yielded towards each other. Can you imagine that, being God and being shy and yielded toward the other? Jesus is always pointing at, at how great the Holy Spirit and the Father are. The Father's always pointing at how great the Son is. The Spirit, of course, lifts up Jesus and the Father. That's how we're to live our lives, too. We can't do that if our hearts are filled with lust. Jesus is also just and he's thoughtful. And and I don't mean that he's considerate, though he is, but he's also thoughtful. He thinks deeply about things. You and I need to think deeply about things. And one of the things we need to think deeply about are the things that will counteract this lust in our lives, whatever that is. Our call is to be conformed to the image of God's Son by the power of the Holy Spirit filling all of us. That's our call. Let me pray. God, we are grateful for who you are, for what you've done for us in your Son and by your Spirit. We're humbled to stand before that. We're humbled to be recipients of that. God, I just pray that that. that That we would be reminded every single day of your love and your life for us. God, help us to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to.